There's not a vertebrate on this planet that doesn't have ears. There are plenty that don't have eyes. And the reason for that is that hearing is our primary warning sense, and it's also how we spot a lot of opportunities. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. I am thrilled to be with Julian Treasure today. We've actually, this is a, a second attempt. We, we had some technical difficulties, ironically, on the first go around with the sound. So we're doing it again. And why that's ironic is Julian is a sound and communications expert. And that sounds, I think, a little trite. I think after you listen to what he has to say, you're going to want to add some adjectives and nouns to that statement. His insight about people and the importance of listening particularly, I found profound. And he's expressed that profundity to over 100 million people via TED Talks, which I've watched, I think, two of them really must view in my, my mind. Lastly, he's, he's also the founder and uh, head of the sound agency, which works with big brands on how to incorporate sound into the brand experience. May not be exactly right. And then lastly, I think as interestingly, he's launched a, uh, I call it a technology called Mootsonic, which we'll, uh, we'll hear a little bit about shortly. So Julian, thank you again for being willing to be on Insert Human. Absolute pleasure, Chris. Looking forward to it. So the standard question of, but important question, how did you get into this space? And it's such an interesting space. And I, I have the, again, to the audience, I have the benefit of having talked to Julian at length and it's, it's an incredible story for them. How did you get, get into the sound business? Well, first of all, I'm a musician. I have to own that. It always reminds mm -hmm. me of that scene from the Blues Brothers. Are you boys from the police? No, man, we're musicians. So... Yep, that's, that's me, and I have been all my life. And I do think that if you're a musician, you listen in a slightly different way to perhaps non-musicians, because if you're going to play in a group or in a, an orchestra, you have to listen to a lot of different things at the same time. It's a multi-track listening, and you have to listen very attentively. If you're not, you're not a very good player. If you're not responding to, you know, every nuance, that push from the horn section or, you know, that holding back or, you know, the vocalist is getting more energetic, whatever it is, you need to be responsive. I'm a drummer. So, you know, I've heard all the jokes. Well, I think my favorite one is, how do you tell if the stage is level? The drummer is drooling out of both sides of his mouth. Slightly unkind. Drummers tell them about bass players, so it's all fair. <laughs> I assume you've told Toby that. Toby is a mutual friend of ours who is also a very, I think, prolific drummer. Like, like yes, drummer. yeah, he's an excellent drummer. He teaches as well. So, yeah, no, we've we've all heard them. You know, the what mm -hmm. do you call somebody who hangs around with a bunch of musicians? You know, all of those kind of jokes. <laughs> anyway, listening has been a big part of my life all the way through. And then I had a career in, in marketing, which started in magazine publishing and then moved well, advertising originally, then magazine publishing, sales, advertising sales, then marketing. And then I launched my own business in the late 80s, which was producing what you in the States call custom publications. Uh, we call it contract publishing over here. Magazines for brands. 
which was tiny and almost unknown when I started. Why would we want a magazine? We're not a publisher. But now it's the biggest sector in the UK magazine industry. It's a billion dollar industry over here. So I was doing that for a long time. And that really requires understanding the voice of a brand. And, you know, it's a brand speaking to its audience in a, in a more interesting way than buy our stuff. You know, there's a lot of stuff around that. You're trying to be engaging and that requires listening to an audience and understanding it and so forth. So I did that for 15 years. And when I sold that business to an American advertising company, I wanted to bring the two halves of me together, really. The, The musical listening side and the marketing side, which understood brands. So I formed the sound agency with the intention of asking and answering the question, how does your brand sound, which is not that often, or certainly in those days, wasn't that often asked. Now it's much more common. Can we timestamp that? When when did you found the sound agency? Yeah, it's 2003, so 15 years of So yeah, I would agree, 2003 brands weren't necessarily asking that question. No, it was before Martin Lindstrom had written his, the book, which kind of helped to break it all open. That's called Brand Sense. And I wrote my own book, sound business in 2007 and the thing has really opened up since then i mean obviously now we've got audio branding companies all over the world in in africa in south america in russia in the far east so it's now become almost de rigueur that you need to think about having a sonic logo or the music you use or the voices associated with your brand or you know the sound you make because after all every brand is making sound and the question is, is it designed? Is it intentional? Is it pointing in the right direction? You know, the sound of your delivery trucks. <laughs> I mean, there are lots of different sounds going on. The sound of your receptionist, the sound of your corporate reception, the sound of your offices, the sound of your warehouses. I mean, all sorts of sound. So it's a complex subject to get into. So that was it, really. I, I, I synthesized those two parts of me in 2003 and started that that business. Julian, does the evolution of the business, you know, from 2003 when not many brands were talking about it to today, does that reflect something about either, I don't know, the evolution of marketing, its growing sophistication and understanding about humanity? Like, is there something underpinning it or is it just, you know, it was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. I don't know if that question makes any sense. A total sense. And it's a very interesting question. And yes, I do think so, because now brands had better be listening a bit more than they used to, a lot more than they used to. You know, it used to be that you would launch a brand and control it, and it was one-to-many communication, and you would intrude on people's lives with advertising in programs that everybody was sitting watching. Oh, the world is so different now. And we have social media. So you don't Mm -hmm. own a brand anymore. It's co-created with people. Mm. I mean, they take it and change it out there. Peer review. You know, if you don't, if you make a brand promise and you don't deliver it, you'll get Facebooked to death, you know, tweeted to death. People will be talking about it. People notice. And there are many instances of this happening out there. Reputation and authenticity and integrity have become absolutely critical. So it's important to make sure that your brand promise, whatever that might be, is played out in brand experience, which is consistent, congruent, and excellent. And of course, we experience the world in five senses, not just one. So that brand experience had better be right in every sense. 
it's no good having a wonderful visual product. I mean, there are there are great little um, examples of this. There was a piece of research done some time ago in Denmark, I think they did it, with hair dryers, where they had a range of hair dryers and asked people to select which one they would most likely buy, prices on them, how they look. There was a ranking, and then they turned them on, and the ranking turned upside down because the one people thought looked great was so noisy and awful that it became bottom of the rankings. Other examples, you know, in America, they've tried selling quiet leaf blowers, but unfortunately, people associate noise with power in the leaf blower world. So quiet leaf blowers didn't sell very well because people thought they were less powerful and less effective. So sound is a, is a big part of many, many products from a Ferrari or Harley Davidson through to more obvious examples like pianos and musical instruments and so forth. Right. Uh, there, are, there aren't that many products where sound doesn't play a role at all in the relationship with the brand or the experience of using the product. I want to underscore something that you said a couple of minutes ago about, um, like when I first heard about the sound agency, I, I, I immediately locked into the sounds that a brand emits, like you, like you, the examples you shared, either the brand or the product or the service or whatever. But the other thing you said, which which really stuck with me, was it's also about the the brand's ability to listen. So it's sound going out and also sound coming in, right? So it's mm. it's not it's not unilateral. It's 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 two way, right? The work that I guess my question is the work that you do with brands is looking at both both ways. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And of course, it all moved into the work I do with individual people, because what occurred to me is that the sound that organizations make is actually down to a bunch of people. And those people having a certain relationship with sound, in most cases, that is not a very good one. We don't listen very much. We're surrounded by noise. We are numb, really, a lot of the time to sound. So we are not that conscious of the sound we're making either. And unfortunately, if you put a bunch of people who don't listen very well into an organization, amazingly, what you get is an organization that doesn't listen very well. And there was a <laughs> piece of research done a few years ago called the Organizational Listening Project, which is fascinating. And it found that, and this is self-reported, so probably exaggerated, it found that across a range of organizational sizes from SMEs up to very major the average amount of time, energy, effort, budget, focus that they were putting into listening was 20% and speaking or outbound communication, 80%. And that really doesn't surprise you a lot when you think about what comes to mind when you say corporate communication, that's mm -hmm. outbound, it's PR, it's advertising, it's marketing, communication of all kinds. You don't think about listening. Right. Organizations are terrible. At listening. I mean, the, the, that was the basic finding of that piece of research is abject listening. And that is needing to, to change now. I mean, not only do you have, you know, maybe people listening to Twitter and Facebook and trying to catch the public vibe about your organization or complaints or things like that. And that's a fairly obvious one. But also listening in a more general sense for opportunity, listening to your employees, listening to competitors, listening to everything that's going on. I mean, I always think of the analogy of a squirrel. You know, there's, there's not a vertebrate on this planet that doesn't have ears. There are plenty that don't have eyes. 
And the reason for that is that hearing is our primary warning sense, and it's also how we spot a lot of opportunities. So your little squirrel is there listening all the time for danger mm-hmm. and for food or a mate or whatever it might mm-hmm. be that he or she is particularly interested in. So listening, being sensitive, is so much more important now than it ever was in the world of shouty branding that we grew up in in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And that's not just at a brand level. That's at a, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's at a human level, right? Like, Because I think that 80-20 probably applies to our personal lives as well. I'm thinking about my relationship with my wife. (laughs) I'm sure not. But uh, I mean, I can prove it to you in general, because if you look at the viewing figures, I've got five TED Talks. And the third one was about listening. And the fifth one was about speaking. And the one about speaking has got five times as many views as the one about listening. Wow. which kind of chimes with that organizational Mm -hmm. listening project research. So I would tend to think that's a reasonable rule of thumb. And poor old, uh, you know, Epictetus, the famous Stoic philosopher, we have two ears and one mouth that we may listen twice as much as we speak. Not so much these days. We're much more into personal broadcasting, you know, tapping away on Twitter. I'm on a train. Who cares? You know, but we have this fantasy that there are thousands of people out there hanging on our every word. Well, right. might might be true of your Donald Trump or somebody who's right. got millions of follow- followers. But for you and me, Chris, I'm afraid the answer is not really. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a fantasy, and this is all kind of ego driven. Because I was going to say, is the bias of all this ego is is that yeah. is that why the speaking versus listening, you know, waiting is what it is. Well, it, we that's the natural, that's the, that's the inner force which is driving it, I think. Yes, the ego which needs to be stroked and, you know, easily takes offense and wants to be loved and respected and responded to and so forth and amplified enormously by the rise of social media, which has made, you know, how many likes did you get? How many retweets did you get? I mean, these metrics now, are the, they're the metrics of, of social approval, aren't they? And it's now become a huge part of people's self-esteem that they are esteemed in that way, albeit a very shallow way, by the the other people on social media. So I think we've invented a monster here, which is amplifying perhaps the less interesting, admirable aspects of humanity and uh, not doing a tremendous amount to amplify the, the better part of us. It's funny, you know, I think I mentioned to you when we first talked that I'm writing a a book titled Technology is Dead, which is an examination of the unintended consequences of technological innovation. Some positive, some not so many, not so positive. And then what we can do about it to try to mitigate the the fallout. I was writing about that with social media, one of the biggest consequences of it is it basically takes the governor off of distribution. Mm. That prior to it, the ability to distribute one's point of view was was not easy, mm. you know, and, and if it was also oftentimes expensive. And so because the distribution modes were limited, it forced a focus on integrity of the message, the quality of the message, of the fact base of the message. And now we live in a world where distribution is free and infinite. And, you know, it takes no labor to, you know, to push the button. 
or to type on the keyboard. And that 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 lack of governor, I think, is just you know hugely problematic. Yeah. Yes, democratization is a is a you know a good thing in theory, but it does have major consequences yeah. for the world. Yeah. And you know, history is littered with what looked like good ideas turning out to be not so good in the long run because they kind of acted in the opposite way to the way th- people thought they were going to act. We've seen the democratization of music give rise to, you know, a tidal wave of crap, unfortunately. There was a time when it was much harder and more expensive to produce. Now, you could say it's a great thing that everybody can make music with a laptop. Well, is it? Because it's harder to, and it's much harder than it ever has been now to find really good music in amongst this enormous sea of, you know, at best, very average stuff that's coming out. And sadly, the same the same thing happened with, of course, publishing, where I remember when Quark Express came out and I was hunched over a Macintosh SE doing a magazine in Quark Express 2 or something at the time, which was very painful. What was equally painful was to see some of the stuff that's coming out because everybody's going, ah, great, we can have nine typefaces on a page. Let's do it. And they did. <laughs> and they did. Now, obviously, obviously, these tools, wh- whatever it is, whether it's Quark Express, Ableton Live, Apple Logic, you know, any kind of design tool, creative tool, is better in the hands of a creative professional person because they can do greater things faster and push the envelope upwards. Right. But at the lower end, you have this democratization effect. And, right. you know, I think that has to be taken pretty seriously, especially when you're talking about the spoken word, and especially when you've got tools coming along like we have now, where AI-driven deepfake technology is going to mean that we won't know if something's real or not, whether it's audio or video. And that right. has huge it's consequences scary. for, yeah. you know, for democracy and for people's behavior. Because, you know, if you think about it, the other consequence if you can't tell if something's true or not, is total deniability at all times. It wasn't me. It's a fake. Well, how, do, how can anybody tell if, it, if the fakes are just as good as the real thing? You can get away with pretty much anything. That's scary. And I won't go political here, but we are obviously feeling the effects of that as a country right mm. now. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, la- last time we chatted, we got into a, a conversation about how you live your life, not you, Julian, or actually, I think I did ask you that specific question, but how can one live one's life in a more listening first modality, or at least where listening and speaking are, call it better balanced. Mm. And so how do you do it? Or how do you, how do you advise others to try to shift that inherent ego driven bias and, you know, stop talking and start listening? Are, Are there, are there tricks of the proverbial trade or, What do you do? Well, the first thing I think is consciousness, shining the light of consciousness on this. And by that, I mean realizing that listening is a skill. It's not a capability. Hearing is a capability. You hear everything. It's your primary warning sense, very important. You can hear behind you. I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at seeing what's behind me. So hearing goes very deep, very fast to the precortical brain and ultimately makes its way towards your cortex where you do two really important things. And this is listening. You select certain things to pay attention to out of all the things you can hear. And then you make them mean something. 
So my definition of listening is making meaning from sound. Now that's a skill and it requires attention, dedication. It's work, it's effort. It's not an effortless capability like your heart beating or breathing. It's actually a skill. And that's where it all goes wrong right at the beginning because we teach reading and writing as skills in school. It's a scandal if a child leaves school unable to read or write. And yet speaking and listening, we kind of expect children just to pick those things up as they go along. And at no stage do we explain to them that these are crucial life skills which will determine their outcomes and their, their vector in life, you know, where they end up, their success or failure in so many aspects of life, asking people to marry them, asking for a raise, inspiring teams and getting people to work with them and so forth. These things are all down to how well you can speak and listen, not how well you can read or write generally. I mean, it, it, I mean it, if I can just quickly comment on that, it, it, it truly is remarkable that our society's development system ignores fundamental capacities. And I include in that, uh, one of my frustrations was I, I became a parent with no parenting acumen, <laughs> zero. And yeah. I was just sort of assumed that I would know what to do. Yeah. Or I became a, you know, a leader of a company and it was assumed that I would know how to, how to talk to the company and how to listen yeah. to the company. It, it just, it really is quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. Well, of the, you know, the basics of life, if you think about it, looking after your body, good nutrition, stretching, good exercise, hydration. Who teaches you that stuff? <laughs> I mean, I didn't get it at school. And not to mention money management, financial management, which is the bane of most people's lives. So you're absolutely right. I think fundamental life skills are sadly ignored. And of course, if you listen to Ken Robinson's excellent number one of all time TED Talk, you know, what we really need to be teaching people is creative problem problem solving and looking after themselves, giving themselves a platform to solve whatever problem they're going to be facing in 10 or 20 years time. We have absolutely no idea what that's going to look like. So yeah. teaching, you know, the basic skills is less important perhaps than it ever has been. And, you know, I would, I focus on sound. So that's my big clarion call that we need to start teaching children how to listen in school. Mm. It's a very, very important skill. So that's where it starts to go wrong, really, that we, we're not conscious that this is a skill in the first place. Right. And as soon as now, you know, everybody listening to this, you are conscious because I just told you. <laughs> so there's no excuse anymore. It's a skill, ladies and gentlemen. It's something that you can master, practice, work on, get better at. And the rewards of being a great listener are enormous, enormous. You know, Hemingway said, I like to listen. Most people never listen. I've learned a great deal from listening. And he's right. Uh, you know, it's well, a big uh, advantage in life to be a good listener. You, you, you learn things, you understand people better, you can sell better, you can persuade, inspire. And not least, what's the biggest complaint in relationships? He or she never listens yeah. to me. So right. it, it underpins, you know, a lot of the most important things that we want to achieve in our life and consciousness. I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking about my relationship with Kate and, you know, we're we love each other and we have a very strong marriage and we get into arguments on occasion, like most couples and the failure is listening. And even going into it, knowing, knowing that it's still brutally hard. And I think it goes back to your ego point, like ego wants to win the battle or the war or the whatever, the argument. And totally. And ego ego is it, insistent. 
Yes. I'm speaking. Yes, indeed. And ego, ego is behind, I think, both of the two human habits, which I talk a lot about, which under, undermine our ability to communicate, to listen and to speak, which are looking good, first of all. So we all like to look good. Of course we do. But if it becomes a driving force, if it's really what's inspiring the communication, you know, then you get people that go on stage. It's all about me. Come on, love me, respect me, uh, you know, that kind of thing. People can see that. People can feel it. And that kind of performance is shallow and ineffective ultimately. And it gives rise in personal communication to some unfortunate things like, you know, competitive speaking. If you know people who do that, I mean, I might say, oh, I'm going to Greece on holiday this year. And the other person would say, oh, yeah, I've been to Greece six times. <laughs> oh, that's my little bit of joy Great. squashed there. You know, somebody who's always got to be bigger, better, best, and, and so yeah. forth. The other one, of course, which we, the, the one thing we like more than looking good as human beings is being right. And that mm. is a national and global epidemic now. We are getting very, very attached to being right. And the easiest way to be right, of course, is to make somebody else wrong. So that's where blaming, judging, and demonizing, and caricaturing, and polarizing, all that comes from this attachment to being right. And I think Barack Obama said, I like to listen to people, especially when I disagree with them. Well, that's rare now, isn't it? Because we don't. We go onto the internet, we find, oh, there you are. I knew I was right. 10,000 people agree with me. So I'm now in a silo of 10,001 people who think this thing and are convinced that they're right. And ultimately, that's a slippery slope. And at the end of that slippery slope is the sort of ISIS way of being, which is if you disagree with me, I will kill you. And that's a dangerous world to be in. And unfortunately, we're sliding down that slope you know, as we speak, yeah. we've just seen it in the US elections. We've seen it in my country in the Brexit referendum, which was terrible. I mean, full of lies and personal attacks and so forth. So again, I think listening has to be the antidote to these things because democracy relies on civil disagreement. You know, mm -hmm. I have to live. I may not agree with you, Chris, but if there are more of you than me, I have to live according to your rules and respect you. And the, the way to get around that is conscious listening, which always creates understanding because I can ask myself, okay, I don't agree with you. Why do you believe that? And I can at least have compassion and seek to understand curiosity mm -hmm. and compassion as opposed to dismissal and hostility and, right. you know, inimity. There's also, I think, an element in here, at least in the United States, where it almost sounds or feels like, or sounds maybe more appropriate, that whoever yells loudest should win. <laughs> you know, it's just that you don't actually need facts or reason to support your position. It, it is literally a, if I scream louder, you know, I, you know, I therefore should win. So I, I guess it's just another way of saying the speaking bias is alive and well in, in all of us. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, that's true. And, uh, you know, I'm a great fan of Susan Cain's famous TED talk about the power of introverts and the importance of quietness and reflection in life. And, the, you know, the, the role those people have to play in, in society, which is crucial. And if we all get seduced by this bombastic, you know, machismo of, right. as you say, shouting louder and saying it more often, just over and over right. again until everybody thinks it's true. Well, that's a sad place to be, I think.
Yeah. You know, the quiet, the quietude idea. It's funny. I, I actually had a, gave a talk this morning for a friend of mine, her company here in Boston. And she asked me to talk to her team. It's a small company, about 20 people. And I could talk about whatever I want to talk about. And I decided I wanted to talk about the, the meaning, the, the potential of meaning in a moment, which is this idea that time is made up of minutes, but minutes can be translated by us or transformed by us into moments. Mm. And that's a choice. And that's a, and to your point about listening, it's a skill to be, you know, you can develop this. It's a muscle. You can get stronger at it. And this idea of being quiet is a choice, right? Yeah. It's something that I think what's maybe interesting about that is a lot of people are maybe afraid of that choice. And I've seen this with, with people that I've worked with that quiet is scary, that we, we live in a world where we, we think more noise is better, that more mm. demand, more transactions allow us to avoid the quiet of our own thoughts. Or, you know, I agree with this very much. And I think, uh, you know, one of the exercises I talk about in my TED talk about listening, which I really believe in, is um, developing a better relationship with silence, which I would I love that. Tend I love that. Yeah. So the easy way to do that is to try and get a few minutes of silence a few times a day if you can. I mean, even once a day is good. Because silence is your baseline. I mean, the world-famous percussionist, Dave Evelyn Glennie, who I had the pleasure of interviewing a few years ago, says silence is a sound. And I agree with that. And there are different mm. qualities of silence. You know, the silence of the high mountains on a still day, the silence of a deep cave, the silence of a, a huge church, which, which is empty. There are lots of different silences that one can explore. But if silence is a friend, it's got many good effects. First of all, it recalibrates your ears because it's the baseline and it's the silence mm. in between the words that makes the words make sense or in between the notes. Otherwise, it's just a constant blah, you know. Right. So silence is kind of formative in that way. It's like the kind of dark matter of communication. Mm -hmm. And also, if you're a friend of silence and you're comfortable with silence, it means you don't blather you don't come on stage and blab. You know, it's the biggest thing I've seen, the biggest mistake I see people make when they come on stage, especially if they're nervous, is to start speaking really quickly with lots and lots of filler words. Oh, um, uh, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and fill because they think, you know, maybe they've only got five minutes. Maybe they're just really nervous. They think they've got to fill every second with sound. Right, and right. without the valleys, you have no mountains. Without right. the pauses, the words just become, you know, a constant stream and people switch off. They tune out. So it's a very powerful thing. I do this on stage, you know, when I'm talking to people and I just stop. Now, I won't do it for a long time here because that's dead air if, if you're audio yeah, only. Yeah, yeah. Radio get very sensitive about dead air because people think something's gone wrong and tune out. But on stage, they can see I'm still standing there. I'm looking yeah. perfectly comfortable. And I can stand there for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a long time. Yeah. And everybody just it's, looks perfectly happy. It's you know? funny because I, I actually just realized I did something recently that is very aligned with, with that advice per, or perspective. So I get, I've been doing more of these digital talks, which are a challenge. I mean, they're very different than the you know on, mm. on stage version. I'm just very worried that people who are watching me do my, which is basically staring into my laptop, are really 
listening and really engaging. Mm. And so the last two talks I've given, I've stopped three times during my presentation and posited a question, not a big question, a little question, and just allowed the audience to sit with it for 30 seconds. Mm. I don't say a word, you know, and, and, and I just realized like, that's what I was trying to get to is, 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 is a, is a moment of contemplation mm. um, that might actually increase the resonance of what it is I'm trying to say, but very much versus so. filling, filling all the airspace with, with blah, blah, you know, the enemy of comprehension, Sorry. if you're if you're public speaking, well, or one to one, actually, to be honest, the enemy of comprehension is similarity. So repeating cadences, or a constant pace, or you know, lack of prosody mm. or prosody, which I talk about a lot. So you know, if you're doing something that's the same for a long time, people detune, and where you can break it up is with pauses, is with volume. Or you can get very, very quiet. You know, you varying like that is what gets people to stay attentive because it's dynamic. There's something unexpected happening. They can't predict. The moment, it's like listening to a hum or a buzz, you know, we tune it out and we become actually unconscious of the sound at all, although it's still there. And there's a little bit of your brain doing the work to remove it. So it's it, it's a ver, ver, variation, variability, variety. Um, he ever flexes on that word. That's your friend when you're speaking and you want to keep people's attention. Great advice. I, I want to cut back to, and I'm mindful of the time, so I don't want to take too much more from you. But last time we spoke, you also talked about listening in your home, and that, and it was very very moving for me to hear you talk about like every every space in your home has a sound or has sounds and like almost mm. doing a, a listening audit of your own environment to, yeah, to yeah, understand absolutely. it. But without the almost. Can you just share a little bit more about that? <laughs> yes, totally. So one of the things the sound agency does when we go out and experience spaces is we do sound audits. We, we walk around listening intently to acoustics, to noise sources in a space, to you know, any sound system that's in there and any content that's coming out, which, you know, typically in a shopping mall will be tinny music coming out of a sound system that was only ever designed for voice announcements. So you're walking around hearing. Is that why it's so bad? Yes, that's why it's so bad. So we do that all the time. And I would strongly recommend anybody listening to this to do it in your house. It's a really good thing to do. I mean, there's an exercise I talk about in that talk on listening again called savoring. And that's, that's really the heart of this. It's tasting sound. You know, when you put something in your mouth, you taste it and you know if it's good for you or not, and you spit it out if it's not pleasant. But we've gone numb to sound. You know, you were talking, mm. Chris, earlier about noise. Noise has numbed us. And so the way to do this is go into each room in your house, close your eyes, and just spend, you know, 30 seconds standing there and listening and ask yourself, is the sound in this room conducive to supporting, you know, enhancing what I want to do in this room, which might be sleeping if it's your bedroom, it might be working if it's your, your study, it might be, you know, being creative, it might be cooking in the kitchen, whatever it is, and you'll probably become sensitive to some hums or buzzes or noises or there's that thing, do you know, that's been doing that for five years and I didn't notice it. 
until just now because I've not been listening. I've been so used to tuning it out. It's a very good exercise to do. And you can start to think about what sound could I introduce into this room? And that's what we do with Mood Sonic in offices, biophilic sound, the sound of nature, very health-giving, very good for you. We can put that in any room. You know, it doesn't take much to put some small loudspeakers in and have some nature sound, which you can stream and uh, you can you can find very, very high quality recordings of nature sound uh, or music or whatever. You know, you might like the sound of jet aircraft. I don't know, whatever turns you on, but whatever it is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's think about designing with our ears in these spaces so that we're supporting each activity and really making our homes so, into yeah. Something I'm sitting here, so I'm sitting at my desk. You've you've seen it because we've been on video together. You've seen I'm sitting at my desk in in our living room in Boston, and you know I'm very mindful of how my desk looks and how it feels and how my seat is, right? So my 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 sight my sight is active. My tactile senses are active. The interesting thing is, I to your point, like you ignore sound as a as a variable, and yet I'm realizing that it likely has a physiological impact on mm-hmm. our being. I mean, I, totally. I, 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 right. I mean, totally. so if I'm concerned about being productive or being happy or whatever, you know, I, I've got, I've got to embrace this, this sense. And yeah, sound, sound and, affects you physiologically. It changes your heart rate, your breathing, your hormone secretions, your brain waves. Psychologically, it changes your moods and emotions. Cognitively, it affects how well you can think. You know, try doing complex work with bebop jazz blaring out or even mm. classical music or somebody talking behind you. You have no earlids. Mm. It's very difficult to tune these things out. And finally, sound affects your behavior. It changes what you do. So it is really fundamental and it's important to design with the ears as well as with the eyes. Yeah, love that. Let me let me uh, wrap it up with I just would love to hear two minutes on Mood Sonic and the impetus for the idea and, and just help the audience understand exactly what, what you're doing with the technology. Sure. Well, the sound agency started out with classical kind of audio branding stuff, which is Sonic logos and music and voice and things like that. But pretty soon we started to specialize in sound in spaces, which was shopping malls for years. I mean, I've been in many shopping malls, <laughs> many, many. And we did a lot of things like removing mindless music, the kind of thing I was just talking about, you know, poor quality, badly selected not very interesting and just adding to noise. And we developed a technology. It's called Mood Sonic and it is based on a generative engine. That is a computer-based software system that is algorithmic, probabilistic. So it creates textures of sound in real time. So this isn't recorded. Mm. This is played live by a computer, if you like. Wow. So the the analogy would be if you know if you're in a forest there are birds singing and there's a kind of random distribution. They don't all sing at once and then fall silent for 10 minutes. Well, they no, could, they don't. but that's very unlikely. So that's what, that's what our software does. It creates a kind of stochastic distribution of sound and it, it can emulate natural soundscapes, biophilic ones particularly. So the sounds of nature, forest sound, or it might be a swamp or it might be a seashore or it might be a woodland or a jungle or any pretty much any sound on the planet we can emulate. And we can also create music with it too, or musical ambiences. This is sound that's designed to exist in between silence and music. So it is not designed to be listened to. It's designed to create a lovely ambience. It has the byproduct of 
also reducing distraction. So it's like a, a masking system if we choose the right sound. Uh, so, for example, running water is very good at masking speech because speech is understood largely by consonants and particularly the sibilants, the s and t. And if you mask those, which water does very well, it becomes much harder to understand people. And therefore, that person talking, you know, five yards or 10 yards to your right is not so intelligible and doesn't distract you so much from your work. So, so it does a bit of that. It's primarily designed to improve well-being because the research is now showing that these sounds are good for us. Birdsong, the sound of running water, the sound of wind, these gentle, beautiful, natural sounds are actually good for us physically. So that's what we do. We're reducing cortisol, uh, stress hormones. We're reducing fatigue. We're creating working environments which are more productive and healthier. And the initial installations, which we've now got in America, in Australia, in India, so it's a global thing, they are fantastic. And they, they, the responses from these really major corporations are amazing. So we are very excited about it. And I really believe we're going to be able to improve the, the quality of life of millions and millions of people around the world in the next two or three years. Well, and, you know, firstly, congratulations on, on the invention and the progress with the business. And I think it just underscores this growing recognition of the, the importance of in, environment in sort of a whole person kind of way and, and supporting, nurturing, you know, helping people realize a level of contentment or peace, uh, however you want to express it. I think it's great. I, I want to just conclude with, I was reading your website a while back and um, I wrote down this statement and I'd love for you to just to comment as our, as our last part of our chat, listening is the doorway to understanding. And I just so love that <laughs> yeah. in, in every aspect. I mean, right now, particularly in America, like we we're not listening in relationships. It's not listening. And even in corporations, I think there's a disconnect between the capacity yeah. of the leadership of many companies to actually listen Mm. to employees, to customers, you know, how can we, I know this is the impossible question, but how can we, each of us individually begin to elevate that construct to, to yield a, a better environment for, for more? Is it as simple as you just got to start trying, you know, is it back to the sort of choice and the muscle and skill thing? Well, yes, I think to a degree that's true. And I'm a great believer in ripples in the pond I'm thrilled that like 100 million people have seen my TED Talks because that's 100 million people who, with a bit of luck, are listening right. better, speaking better, make, paying more attention to sound around them. And that affects the people around them. You know, if I go home and start listening to my family in a way I haven't before, you know, and I would, you know, I would challenge everybody listening to this, you know, when, when you stop listening to this, you're probably at home now anyway, go and listen to somebody in your family. You know, there's an exercise in my TED Talk called Rasa, which you could carry out, which is to really pay attention, receive, appreciate, make little noises, summarize, use the word so, so I heard you say this, and then ask questions at the end. You know, have a look at the TED Talk. I'll explain it in more detail, but go and listen to somebody. Give them that gift of your 100% attention, and they'll probably say something like, what are you doing? <laughs> because yeah, right. they're not, Why are you being they're so not used weird? to it. Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing? Are you What's going weird? on? You don't normally do because because we're so used to giving partial attention. You know, I'm listening to you tapping away on a on a phone. That's not listening. That's that's partial listening. So try that, everybody. 
Just go. What's the R, gift. Julian? Remind me what receive, the R is. Receive, appreciate, summarize, ask. Got so re- receive is paying attention. Appreciate is, mm, oh, really? Or, you know, body language, which does that. Summarize is the word so. So I heard you say this, or so what we've agreed is this, or so did I get, did I, is this what you said? And ask questions at the end. Why, what, which, when, how, where, who, you know, open-ended questions. So that's Rasa. That could be, you know, that could be the prescription. On this talk I gave this morning, they asked me the the question, how how do we solve, how do we solve our, our societal problems and the division between us? And I had a couple of answers, but I think Rasa may be a better, uh, better model or at least starting point. So, well, listening um, is certainly a good access, oh absolutely yeah. crucial. And I, you know, I adore listening to you. I mean, the first time around was amazing. This time around, also amazing. And I encourage the audience to watch and listen to what Julian has to say. The TED Talks, as I said, I've seen two. There are three more I want to do, five in total. Check out his website for sure. His is your book still available? Sound business still available? That one is yes, and there's the yeah. other book is called How to Be Heard, which is all about communication skills. And right. uh, if anybody's interested, pop by the website juliantreasure.com because I've done a really good thing on there recently, which is to take that number five TED talk of all time, the one about speaking, and dissect it. And I've worked with a speaking coach called Neil Gordon. We've created a 50 minute video where I go through every aspect. You know, we stop the video. What what was I doing there? Why did I do that? How did I open it? How did I prepare? You know, what was it like? So it's, it's a real dissection of your, your talk. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a total postmortem on that talk. And what came out of that is lots and lots of really interesting learnings about the do's and don'ts of public speaking, I suppose. So that's free. I mean, just come by the website, sign, pop your email address in, and we'll send a link to that, and you can watch that 50-minute video. And it's, I think it's really interesting. Well, that's great. And just lastly, everybody, bookmark Julian Treasure, because there's more to come from him. Uh, he's starting a couple of podcasts, one involving the sound agency, and another one which is more maybe uh, about him. And just, just get plugged into what he has to say and listen, listen hard, because... It's, a, I think, an essential pathway for all of us, for sure. So, Julian, thank you again for being on Insert Human, and I'm hoping we can stay connected. You know, look forward to being on your show in the not-too-distant future. Big time. Well, thank you so much for having me, Chris. And uh, For the second time, just as much fun as the first. And you know, I look forward to returning the favor and having you on my podcast. But it's been great. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. You take care. Cheers. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons, there are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.